following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I spent the last week in Louisville, Kentucky with my colleagues, the other pastors in the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is our denomination, Uh, which, by the way, if you're just hearing that term, Evangelical Covenant Church, for the first time, let me just promise you it's not as scary as those words sound. (laughs) Um, Although I could understand if you felt kind of of worried. Uh, especially covenant. Does anybody have any idea what that word means? But anyway, we'll talk about that some other time. Um, so I send you greetings. I bring you greetings on behalf of Brother E, Pastor E, who is here doing hip-hop in the fall, and on behalf of uh, Pastor Don Shiver, who uh, has been here to teach on occasion and um, has done some leadership development with our leadership team. And, and all my other colleagues send you their greetings. And it was great to be with them. But... Uh, I may have enjoyed their company a little too much, and I seem to have uh, taken on a little bit of a cold, and my head is a little foggy and so forth, and I'm congested, so bear with me as I take sips of my tea and hopefully string together something coherent in the next few minutes. Um, I actually want to ask you at the outset here, to think about something that might be painful for you to think about, and that is a time when you were betrayed by somebody you loved. Now, some of you, like me, have been very, very fortunate in life and have never experienced that kind of really sharp, painful type of betrayal. But there are some in the room who have been deeply betrayed. Um, And there are some in the room who may have been the one who committed the act of betrayal. It's a community of grace and hope and mercy, and we all exist with each other in that mess. But we have a story of betrayal from the Gospels today, and I hope that if you, f- if you spend a few minutes thinking about an experience that you've had in your own life, that maybe your heart will be kind of open and ready for what God may want to bring to you in this passage. Um, so where we're going is John chapter 13. If you want to go ahead in your Bibles and open them up and find John 13. If you don't have one, you can use the red Bibles and go to page 876. You can look it up on your phone or on the web or whatever works for you. While you're doing that, let me tell you where we are here. Why are we starting a new series with John 13:21? Well, Uh, We have been going through the Gospel of John in sections, like four, five, six weeks at a time, for years now. I'm not sure how many years it's been, but it's been more than two. And uh, we do four, five, or six weeks, and then we leave it aside for a while, and then we do other things, and then we come back to John and just pick up right where we left off. And the last time we were in John, if I'm not mistaken, was when I was on my summer vacation, and so we had a few weeks where I preached, I believe, and then um, two weeks at the end of that series where I didn't preach, we had guest speakers come in. And we finished up, I think, in the first week of August. So it's been a while since we were in John. We're going to pick up right here, as I said, in chapter 13, verse 21. But here's the neat thing about doing this this way. I would love for you all to be reading Scripture on your own. And sometimes people ask me, actually a lot of times people ask me, I would like to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. And there's no great answer to that question that fits everybody. But uh, for all of you, for the next several weeks the place to start would be with the text that's coming up on the, on the coming Sunday, right? Because if you study it on your own, and then I preach on it, and maybe it shows up in your greenhouse small group, um, 
that's a really neat thing when they start to work together. So if you go to artistsandchurch.com and click on the Journeying with John uh, image on the front page, it'll take you through to the series page, and it has the, uh, the texts for each of the weeks already up there. So you can be studying ahead. And then what happens after John is we start Lent. And in the season of Lent, we'll be using the Revised Common Lectionary to uh, provide our scriptures throughout that season. So all the way up through Easter on April 16th, the texts for the sermon are already determined. And so you can be reading ahead for a couple of months here, and I would encourage you to do that. Because um, it's always better when, the, when we're all turning over the scriptures together, right? So let me read to you from John's Gospel. Chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, Do quickly what you are going to do. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the common purse, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, this passage has what seems to me a, an odd blend of things that I find kind of amusing <laughs> and a betrayal that we all find rather disturbing, especially as we start to think about the betrayals in our own life and history. I don't know if there's intentional comic relief in this passage or if I just have kind of a middle school sense of humor, but let me tell you the comic relief that I see in it first, and then we'll get into the, into the more um, kind of difficult emotional turn. First of all, I'm quite amused at the way the disciples respond when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they're all kind of like looking around, right, doing the eyebrows thing, wondering who's he talking about. And then Peter... Um, ever the one to take action, nudges John. By the way, when John, the gospel writer, refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's his very humble way of identifying himself. Uh, and so Peter nudges John, knowing that John's on the inside, and John asks Jesus. And I just find that so amusing. It's like, do you ever have, like, you wanted to ask the teacher a question, but you didn't want to do it, so you made the, the pe- person who the teacher was really fond of ask the question? <laughs> it's exactly what's happening here. Um, and then I'm not sure if it's just the way the room was arranged or what, but the fact that they had no idea what was going on after Jesus told them exactly what was going on, I also find sort of amusing, right? So he says, someone will betray me, and they say, who could it be? And he says, it's the one who I give the bread to after I dip it in the cup (laughs) or the dish, right? And then he takes the bread and dips it in the dish and gives it to Judas, and the disciples are all like, ooh, is that focaccia? That looks really good. I haven't seen that dish before. Did your mom make that on the pottery wheel? 
Where did Judas go? Was he, did he go shopping? What, what, is he going to go make a donation at the food bank? By the way, Battle of the Bowls coming to a great conclusion. It's not too late, though, if you get the, the cereal bowls or the soup bowls, uh, well, boxes and cans, over here before the party tonight. That will all determine the winner of the Battle of the Bowls for the South Wedge food cupboard. Little, uh, little plug. So, I don't know. Somebody said to me after the first sermon when I said the same thing, well, maybe John was reclining close to Jesus and Jesus whispered it to him and then he did the thing with the bread and the dish. Okay, fair enough. Maybe. But anyway, it made me laugh. But now that the comic relief is out of the way, let's get into the deep, profound, painful emotion of this story. And it starts right out by saying Jesus was troubled in spirit and it ends by saying, and it was dark outside. Being troubled in spirit, by the way, is a fancy church way of saying that he felt deeply anxious and was worried and, and was expecting to have his heart broken because he knew what was coming. It tells us way back in John chapter 6, which would have been like 1914 when, when we were studying it, because <laughs> it's so long ago, um, in our journey with John thing, that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Right? Jesus already knew, and he's in a room with the guy. And he knows that the time is coming. And so he's troubled in spirit. He's deeply anxious and fearful and concerned. And anybody who has ever been betrayed by someone they loved knows what this feels like because there's the betrayal, which is bad enough, but there's the time when you suddenly realize it's coming, but it hasn't come to light yet. And that is painful in an entirely different way. And if you have ever been in that situation, or maybe you find yourself in that tension right now, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the hammer to come down, I would suggest to you that the, the human Jesus might be of comfort to you. There's something incredibly powerful in the knowledge that Jesus, the human being, with a heart that pumped blood through his veins just like yours pumps blood through your veins that was about to be broken, had this quintessentially human experience of being let down, being betrayed by someone he loved. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why the church has worked tirelessly over its history to defend the humanity of Jesus in our dogmatic statements, right? Uh, Almost all of the heresies in the early church that the church had to root out had to do with some imbalance between Jesus' divinity and his humanity. Orthodox Christian belief says that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. This duality in nature is one of the great mysteries of the faith. And some people attacked it by saying, well, no, Jesus was just a human being. He wasn't really God. And some people attacked this duality by saying, well, no, Jesus was all spirit. He didn't have a human, a physical body. And the church said no to both of those things because the church says yes to both of those things. And a, a real, live, human Jesus can be of great comfort to us in times of distress and betrayal, because he experienced it himself. That being said, I don't think it's quite enough simply to dwell in the solidarity that comes from witnessing this betrayal. We also have to look to Jesus to see how he responded to it, how he handled it, 
what he did before and after it, if we want to model for how to respond to the betrayals in our own life. So let's look at how Jesus treats, treats Judas here. First of all, there's this dipping of the bread thing. Now, we don't be confused because the, there, Jesus is, uh, this is the Last Supper, right, where communion, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament, is instituted, right? Uh, and when we take communion, we do take some bread and we dip it in a, a dish, a cup full of wine. That's not what's happening here. This is a different ceremony, and it seems that um, this was a signifier of honor, and hospitality for the host or the teacher to dip bread into a dish and hand it to one person indicated that that person was, a, was in a place of honor at that meal. So it's kind of remarkable that Jesus knew Judas was about to betray him and then bestowed on him this gesture of honor. But the picture is even bigger than that. And in order to see it, we have to we have to go back in time a little bit, and we have to go ahead in time a little bit. So first, let's go back. Now, I know it was way back in August, but without looking at your Bibles, can anybody tell me what happens in the first half of John chapter 13? I'll sip my tea and wait. That's right. It was the washing of the disciples' feet. <laughs> Somebody, and to see, the podcast doesn't know that there's nobody who said that. They just think, wow, there's somebody there who knows their Bible really well. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the washing of the feet of the disciples, which, if you don't know, the, the meaning of it is kind of a bizarre account in itself. Uh, but the washing of dirty feet in the ancient world was a task delegated to servants. It was dirty and um, unpleasant and unclean. And so, for Jesus to wash his disciples' feet is held up as the greatest example of servant leadership, perhaps, in the whole gospel account. Uh, And he says to them, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See, he's placing himself in the place of least honor when he should have been in the place of greatest honor. And that's an example for all of us, especially those of us who hold leadership positions in the church. And if you ever find that I or anybody on our staff or leadership team is not leading from that servant attitude, you need to call us on that and, um, because that's a transgression against the way of Jesus. But then he says it to all of them. In all of your doings, essentially, place yourselves under others, even if According to the hierarchies of the world, you're supposed to be above them. And it's very interesting to me, to the point, that Jesus did not dismiss Judas from among their midst before he washed their feet. Remember, he knew who was to betray him. He knew it was coming. And yet, in that room with his closest disciples... He washed their feet, not just Peter the loudmouth, not just John, the one whom he loved, but all of them, including Jesus, who was about to betray, or excuse me, including Judas, who was about to betray him, right? That's one. Let's keep a count. <laughs> the names are kind of similar. Um, so we don't have to go too far back in the story to see that. We don't have to go too far into the story to find what happens next. And this is like the least spoilery, spoiler alert of all time. Jesus dies as a result of this betrayal, right? And Jesus knows he's going to his death. Now, that 
that death happens on the cross, which is the Roman Empire's, the government's uh, machine for executing people. It's the capital punishment of the day. Before he gets to that cross, he has to go through a trial of the religious authorities. The Sanhedrin puts him on trial and sends him up the line. But before he can even get there, he has to be handed over to the authorities. That's what the word betray means in Greek, by the way. It means hand over. And he's handed over by Judas. And now at every step along the way, to the point of his death, where he self-sacrifices, he's extending and offering his love to the human beings who he made who are killing him. This is the heart of the way of Jesus. Love unto the point of death. And that is also our call. Jesus washes the feet of the man who was about to betray him and then goes to his death as a result of the betrayal that happens. So as we try to think, what is the, what is the Christ-like way to process the betrayals in our own life? That's the model. Right? Washing the feet of the person who you think is about to betray you and loving the person to the point of your death, if that's what it takes. Now, let me make a very, very important disclaimer here, which is to say this. I am not suggesting that those of you who happen to be in abusive relationships need to stay in those relationships to fulfill the way of Jesus, okay? I would never say that. In fact, I would say the opposite. If you need to get out of one of those relationships, you can come to me and I will help you with that and I will find other people who will help you with that. Uh, It would not be the first time and, uh, Lord, I hope it never happens again, but the odds are that it will. So, Listen, I'm not telling people who are in an abusive relationship to stay in that relationship just because that's supposedly the Christian thing to do. I have heard such things in churches before, and I renounce it with everything I have. Is that clear enough? We're not really applaud the pastor type of church, but if you want to, that's totally fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's funny. We went to Baber, and I was like, I had to stop for all the applause lines. (laughs) So funny. but leaving that exception aside, okay, this is the model for Christ-like response to a betrayal. Wash the feet, love to the point of death. How do we do that? How can we possibly muster the courage and strength that would be required to respond to these profound betrayals in that way? I don't know, except for this. It occurred to me as I was studying this passage this week that Judas, in that upper room with Jesus and the disciples, was as close to the bread and the wine that was about to become instituted for the sacrament of communion as I am to it right now, as you in the front row are to it right now. Judas was that close to the body and blood of the Savior In his case, of course, Jesus himself was right there. But Jesus is made real to us in the elements of communion. He is really present here in the bread and the wine. And if you need the strength to act in the way of Jesus, in the face of profound loss and betrayal, I know of no other way but then to accept the grace and forgiveness that he has on offer for you now. You see, 
I talked last week about confession. And remember I said, we look at all this stuff going on in the world around us, and it's not enough to point and say, here's all the places where other people are doing things wrong and making the world a crappy place, right? We have to point to ourselves and say, where have I impeded Jesus? Where have I prevented God's goodness from coming to the world and flourishing, right? And I don't say that because I think, like, in this kind of weird um, pioneer religion way that, that uh, we need to uh, get you, you horrible, dirty, scumbag worms to confess and repent, right? Because you're the, you're the reason the whole world has gone to pot, right? That kind of stuff comes out in the church too, and it's such a distortion of the actual truth. Yes, you are all sinners in need of Christ's grace and mercy. If you ever get the impression that I'm not saying that, well, let's have a talk. But if your, if your understanding of the gospel is limited to, um, I'm a, a horrible person, a, a worm below the ground, just terrible, and I need Christ's mercy so that I can be made perfect and shoot myself right up into heaven when I die and be happy forevermore, if that's all there is to the gospel for you, you are missing out so much. I mean, the, the, that is such a pale imitation, such a hollow shell of the gospel that is full and robust and beautiful that I've come to love more and more with each passing year of pastoral ministry. Because here's the reality. Yes, God wants to redeem your broken soul and go to heaven when you die. Hallelujah. And, yes, and, God wants to redeem the whole world that he loves, which he made, and he wants you to be part of it. And for you to be part of it, you need superhuman strength. And to get that superhuman strength to do the kinds of things like loving someone who's betrayed you, you need the grace and mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. You need his body and blood to wash over you and to change who you are. Not just so that you get this get-out-of-jail-free card, spiritually speaking, right? But so that you can then join God in God's work of redeeming the whole world. That is the beauty of the gospel. And by the way, if you've been told your whole life in church that you're supposed to spread the gospel and share the gospel and tell people about Jesus and evangelize them and get them converted and all that stuff, and you've never seen any fruit in that, maybe it's because you're trying to sell them a bill of spiritual goods that they don't even have a category to understand yet, right? If you're trying to tell them, well, you have to believe in Jesus. Why? Well, so you don't go to hell. I don't even think hell is a thing. Well, don't you want to go to heaven? I don't think that's a thing either. Have you ever had this kind of conversation with somebody? (laughs) And we wonder why our evangelistic efforts fall flat. Because we're speaking about categories that people don't even believe they exist yet. What if instead you said, you've got to believe in Jesus? Why? Well, because in Jesus is the grace and mercy and the forgiveness that covers everything you've ever done wrong and gives you power supernaturally to participate in God's desire to redeem the whole world and make all the, the, all the tears be wiped away from every eye and to give every person a home who doesn't have one and to give hope to people who are in prison. That might preach a little better. Just a suggestion. <laughs> if that is what you want in your life, it is that, if that is the, 
If that is what you see as the beauty of the gospel, if Jesus, if you agree with me that Jesus is what you need, then Jesus is made real to you right here in the bread and the wine. And I'm going to invite you to come and receive it. And once again, we take the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. Take it and eat it. Receive it as food for your souls. Receive it as a strengthening power in your body. It is the means of God's grace pushed out to you in these common elements. If you'd like to receive prayer, there's a member of the prayer team waiting for you at the back of the room. And your kids can come and take communion with you too. Uh, We're going to keep singing together for a couple more songs. But our table is open. It is the table of the Lord to be made ready for all you who would follow him in this place. Come and receive his grace and mercy so that you can carry it out into the world. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.